Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. Star in the namesake is Victor Davis Hanson, and he is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He has an official website. It's called The Blade of Perseus, and its web address is victorhanson.com. You should be subscribing, and I'll tell you more about that later. Uh, we are on the cusp of Mother's Day as we record, and this will come out after Mother's Day, but... We have time at the end of this show. We'll maybe have a Mother's Day related thought or two. But to begin with, I think it'd be very interesting to get Victor's thoughts on some international South America activities going on that show maybe that the Monroe Doctrine is dead. It's probably been dead for a while, Victor. And I don't know. Maybe a stake's already been put through its heart. But I think it's. Well, I just. Barack Obama, I remember, kind of killed it, and they kind of announced that they didn't want it around anymore. It was a vestige of imperialism. Yeah. So it's It's been dead, and the old idea that the South American and Latin American countries were going to sort of follow the Chilean model, although Chile has just elected a conservative government to the surprise of everybody, that hasn't panned out. I think part of it is because the United States under Obama for eight years and then uh, the two and a half years, they they were intervening. Remember, Hillary got involved in uh, recognizing or not recognizing governments depend on their ideology. And right. so they, they were promoting when she was secretary of state, they were promoting ideologically left centered governments. And those governments repaid that magnanimity with contempt because they yeah. thought, you know what, we'll just cut. Silk, Silk Road and Belt and Road deals with the Chinese. So the Chinese control the, uh, you know, the Panama Canal and they're building infrastructure in Brazil. They're negotiating with uh, Argentina. So we've lost a lot of our influence. And then we've got this mess on the southern you, border. Yeah, before you go on, we have to talk about this at length. But you know what? We have to pay for this. So we're going to have to get your thoughts, yeah. your extended thoughts, right after these important messages. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, 
you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Yeah, Victor, uh, let, I'm just going to read a headline here and let's you know, continue on what you're saying. But, you know, there's some significant activity in between China and Brazil. Brazil is not just a tiny country. It's a big freaking country. And then following our your thoughts on on uh, South America, we have also then some um gutlessness maybe the Biden administration dealing again with China so this so Tony Blinken can can go over there and have a visit but first Victor I'd like to just here's a headline from uh Gatestone Institute and uh, that's a great website I would like to recommend it to folks a uh, piece by Lawrence Lawrence Franklin Chinese embrace Brazil as global strategic partner as Brazilian president visits China by the way it's hits his fifth visit to China, the Brazilian uh, president. Um, Brazil's warming, here's a little snippet from this piece. Uh, Brazil's warming ties to China also have an economic purpose. China is Brazil's largest trading partner, and Brazil exports a great deal of agricultural produce to China. Brazil appears hopeful for increased Chinese investment to modernize its industrial plant, as well as technology transfer for its semiconductor production. Victor, a massive country uh, to our south, uh, uh, you know, playing footsie with China, throw in Venezuela, Ecuador, Mexico on mm. our border. I mean, could Peru. we have worse, could we yeah. have worse en of, uh, enemies than our alle alleged allies? Victor, you're, keep, keep going. I, yeah, well, I, I mean, I think I was just saying to Sammy, in one of our prior podcasts, if you take away the idea of Mexico as our partner and by extension, other people in Central America, and you just look at the record and then you compare that record with Iran or North Korea, they've done a lot more damage in North Korea. Iran has to us. There's 100,000 people who are dying from fentanyl and before you blame the people for taking fentanyl. Some know what they're doing. There's a lot of them that think it's, you know, Xanax or something uh, or a mild drug. And so the cartels with their billion dollar profits are deliberately taking Chinese raw product and in these stealth, not too stealthy, actually, because they're pretty ostensibly drug cartel factories are exporting it, killing 100,000 people. And then they're sending six and a half million people so far in the last two and a half years in deliberate violation of U.S. law. And Mr. Obrador, the president of Mexico, knows it's in violation. And the people coming across who we, we you know, romanticize as the poor downtrodden, they know exactly what they're doing, that they do not want to come legally, with, which we took a million immigrants in 2019. So there's a process that's the most generous in the world, but that's not enough. They've got to break the law and come into our country at a huge cost. Mr. Obrador is also interfering with U.S. politics, 
when he urges people to vote Democratic. He brags that he sent 40 million of his citizens here that he and prior administrations. And then we have Venezuela that's a de facto enemy of the United States, of which Joe Biden was begging them to give him more oil production uh, right before the midterms. And Brazil, I mean, Mr. Lulu, whatever his name is, is, you know, I guess the only thing you say about that, a prison sentence didn't hurt his chances. I think Neil Ferguson wrote a recent column where he argued that Donald Trump shouldn't worry if he has to go to prison because there's a precedent that it empowers your presidential rematch chances, as it did in Brazil. Uh, So I, you know, you just look at Latin America and Latin America and South America and Mexico or working with the United States when the United States is powerful, strong, self-confident, has a border that people respect and know that it's an honor and a privilege to get into the United States. And when you have a left government that sort of challenges or deprecates the traditions and history of the United States, has no confidence in its values, opens the border, appeases the Brazilians or the Mexicans or the Hun- whoever they are, then they have contempt. And they would rather, you know, their ideas, the Chinese come to them and they say, look, the United States, they don't even know how many genders there are. Have you ever been in Detroit or Portland or Seattle or San Francisco? Look at them. They don't even know what to do with homeless. They're on the descent. You should come over to our side. We'll cut a deal with you. And they're making, the, as I say, the necessary adjustments. It's it's kind of pathetic. It, it really is. I mean, it reminds, reminds me of... Germany uh, in the nineteen in nineteen forty going all through Eastern Europe and the Middle East and telling these countries, you know, we we just overran France. We're, we're right. Britain's isolated. The Americans can't do anything about it. You should join us. And they kind of fostered Nazi movements all over. Right. And that's what China's doing. Well, here's another example, Victor, of of. I guess America projecting um, fear and gutlessness. So it's an editorial from my old stomping grounds, National National Review. Biden capitulates to China is the title. Let me just read the first sentence or two. Bizarrely, the flight of the Chinese military spy balloon over the U.S. may be the occasion for U.S. concessions to Beijing rather than the other way around. According to a, a new report from Reuters, the State Department's China House team was ordered to stand down on some long-planned measures targeting the Chinese Communist Party's malfeasance so that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken can secure the trip to China that he had to cancel after the balloon incident, etc. Victor, um, yeah, I mean, this, this is just... I think... I think weakness. I think at the core of this, isn't it Under Secretary of State Wendy Sherman? Yes. She just stepped down. She was the one that was the architect or the she was John Kerry's sidekick that really pushed the Iran deal. And when she came back in, she did everything in, in her power to appease Iran to get back into that deal. And they humiliated her. And now she's retired. But she is the one pushing China. And there's no there's no pushback against that push because you know, there was just some recent stories about Diane Feinstein and her stock, inside stock tips, 
her recent late husband, his involvement with China, Michael Bloomberg's $10 billion investment in China, Bill Gates' relations with China, and get into Anthony Fauci dealing with the, the Wuhan. There was just too many profitable uh, revenue streams in every sector of American civilization, from the government to politicians, to media, to lawyers, to corporate people. And so when you look at all of these people, I mean, I was just looking at some of these people and what do they do when they when they go? Like think of Michelle Flournoy. She was the undersecretary of defense under Obama. So what did what did she do when she went out of office? She went over to the Boston Consulting Group. And what was that? That was a defense contractor. And all of a sudden she she leaves defense where all her buddies are still entrenched and its revenues go up by about four or five times. It's contractual agreements with the Pentagon and arms supply. And, and then she goes to another contractor. Then she goes to another contractor. And it, it's really depressing how many people who are very, very wealthy and they serve in these high positions in the Pentagon or the State Department. And then they start these uh, consulting groups or lobbyists or corporate defense contractor boards or contractors with the State Department. And then you end up with someone like Hillary Clinton when she's negotiating the sale or the okay of uranium to Vladimir Putin when Bill Clinton's getting a half a million dollars for a 20-minute talk in Moscow. So, you know, it, it it's just... I know they're naive. I know that they don't know anything about China, but they're also all of these people in some way or another are compromised. You know, Victor, if I starting may. With, start, like, starting with Hunter Biden and his buddies in China. Well, well how do you, th if I may, how do you think the, um, so far, the House uh, investigation related to Team Biden, the rollout? Uh, which has, has been, been accused by in some places of, oh, you have no evidence. Well, you know, yeah, they don't have any evidence. Neither did uh, Adam Schiff, but still he got news coverage for his, you know, forthcoming blockbusters that never seemed to, you know, that never seemed to happen. Anyway, Victor, how do you think the rollout uh, on? The, well, is when I heard Comer and everybody say, hold on, hold off on the prosecutions. Just wait till Wednesday. And I thought he was going to, as his critics said, give, you know, criminal referrals and, you know, letter on every detail possible, letters, affidavits, everything. But it didn't seem that way. So I would have done it the other way. I would have released the documents first and not said much. And I would just say, we're going to have a release today and then release it. Then when I was done, I'd say, OK, you see what I've done? This is what it means. But when you broadcast and you you almost promise that the releases of the documents are going to result in almost infant, instant uh, indictments, and then that doesn't happen, and you only control one half of Congress, and you have a very tenuous uh, majority in the House, I, I wouldn't have done it that way. But I'm not, I mean, I'm not overly critical. I just said, think that, uh, I think that the Republicans, they always do this and they underestimate the left. They do it on China. They do it on corruption. They do it on the border. They, they, they say things like, 
Joe Biden was not prepared. I, he, he was prepared. That's what he wants. He wants six and a half million people to cross illegally. He likes 10,000 being arrested each day and another 30 or 40 making it. Across. That's the point. He wants to be uh, close to China so his family and other people can have good relations with very lucrative Chinese concerns. That's what that's the point. And so uh, when you say, well, now the, the family is compromised. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you should ask yourself why, if they're so compromised, they're not in jail. And the reason is that they have these incestuous relationships with the, the DOJ. Merrick Garland's a partisan. FBI is a retrieval service for lost diaries, lost guns, lost uh, laptops. And until you understand what you're up against and whether you're remember that line that David Mamet, you know, that wrote for the untouchables, unless you're willing to do the everything, take a gun to a knife fight, which Barack Obama, of course, used when he was egging on his, I guess, his supporters to get violent. But unless you're willing to to fight fire with fire, then you you don't know what you're up against. The left will do and say anything. And they're going to have a lot of money next time. And they're going to try to warp the electoral process in the sense of changing voting laws. And they're going to call everybody a racist. And so, but I, I think the Republicans, they get, they always in the pinch, they revert back to Romneyism. You know what I mean? I'd rather win, lose nobly than win ugly. Yeah. Also, a, a um, I don't know, disconnect. Or, uh, we're just tired of the, the, the Kraken are, are going to be released and there's mm-hmm. no Kraken to be released. And, uh, you know, it's dispiriting. Also, Victor, you know, the left never seems to, to pay. And I don't even mean here in America, but anywhere. I mean, after the, the uh, Iron Curtain fell, okay, Ceausescu got shot. Well, what happened to the rest of these, you know, oppressive yeah, sons of no, bitches? Nothing. The, sons, the guys who ran the police states, you know, they never seemed – they were the left. They're the, they're the first cousins of the left here in America. They, they never paid a price. And do we really think – Really think the these uh, leftists here in America com- commit crimes that they're going to pay? I don't. I don't think so. No, I mean Joseph Stalin never incurred the amount of hatred that he should have incurred. He was Hitler was more diabolical in his industrialization of death, but Stalin killed more people by intent, a lot more. And Mao was the greatest killer of all, and. Uh, no, they, they. You know why? Because the left here and abroad always falls back on we're for the people, we're for equity, we're for egalitarianism, and the right is for so-called meritocracy and letting the the strong, you know, pursue their pursuits. And the left doesn't believe that, so they have this veneer of of, well, we're fuzzy and kind and empathetic, but they're not. They create the greatest murders of all time because that's a psychological mechanism to cover for some pretty dastardly deeds. And so, but that that's at the heart of our political crisis right now, Jack, is this asymmetry in the application of the law and jurisprudence. So we get 120 days, $2 billion worth of damage, 30 to 40 dead, 
Originally 14,000 arrests, looting, arson, riot, and nothing. Almost nobody was convicted. Two people threw a firebomb, law students, they got, what, one year for a police? And then you compare that to January 6th, where some of these people are looking at 10 and 15 years for kind of a violent pushback against the police. Or you look at the Biden uh, presidential documents taken out in three locations, a garage, and there's no raid. There's no special counsel that is leaking that he's going to indict Biden. And it's just Tara Reid seems to me just as credible as this Carol woman that was accusing Trump. She didn't even at least Tara Reid know the date and the month. This person didn't even know the year. And so, but Tara Reid was, you know, women must remember uh, Senator Hirono. Women must be believed. No, right. they don't. Some women should be believed, but not the ones that embarrass you. Yeah. So it, that's the big, I think that's the frustrating thing. And we're, we can talk about Neely and, and the death and uh, the Marine veteran, Mr. Yeah. Penny, Mr. Penny, but Think about that for a second. We had a guy with an axe that went in and tried to scare people and destroy things, and he's out. And the man that was killed tragically, 42 arrests, three assaults, lewd activity. What was his forte? His forte was going up to innocent people over the age of 65, taking his fist like a coward and smashing their skull. That's what his forte was. And then he tried it one too many times and thought he was going to go as a wolf onto the subway with all the sheep and do his little shtick, which I guess the media transmogrified into. Oh, he was a talented impersonator. He was Michael Jackson. No, he was a thug. So he went in there and he tried to, I'm going to, yeah, I'm, I'm capable. I'm, I'm willing to die. And then so he, his luck ran out. He, he, he encountered somebody who, A, was a veteran, B, didn't give a blank blank and had the physical capacity to take him down. Shouldn't have died. I regret that. And then the media kicked in, just kicked in like automatic pilot. Suddenly, you only saw the video portion of him being choked. Where were the videos that everybody took, we were told, Jack, of all of his shouting and yelling and threatening? I haven't seen very many of those in comparison to the one when he's on the ground. Right. And then and then all of a sudden the media tells, well, he was traumatized because his mother died violently. He was a very gifted person. We didn't hear anything about the background of Mr. Penny, what, what, what he was like. So they right. just took this guy who had terrorized the innocent. And the guy had just violated his parole. He was violent. And they made him into a folk hero. It's just like they did with Trayvon. And, and, you know, that was a Hispanic uh, young man fighting an African-American teenager. We don't know what Trayvon was doing, but he was walking in a suspicious fashion. He went into the Skittles thing. Okay, George Zimmerman's mother was a Peruvian. He could just as easily been called, instead of George Zimmerman, Jorge Mesa. Yeah. And what did they do? They did not want that. So they reinvented a new adjective, a white Hispanic. They photoshopped his police file with all the cuts on his file. They doctored the 911 tape. And presto, you had a white Germanic sounding named person uh, preying on an innocent, poor little minute. Because they picked, they took pictures when Trevon was eleven. That's what they ran with in a football uniform. Oh, he's only eleven. He's a little kid, and you had this big white fruit with a German ancestry trying to kill him. 
And then Barack Obama ran with it. Oh, he's he's a son I never had. Looks like the son I never have. So there you have it. It's yeah. just, it just drives the, people crazy at this asymmetry of the media yeah. and the law. Penny uh, arrested for manslaughter, uh, $100,000 bail. I believe he's out. And, of course, the uh, Al Sharpton has risen to the occasion. That's, that's so funny. Al Sharpton is directly responsible for at least one person getting killed with Freddie's Market. And remember that? Hey, dim Jews, put your yarmulke and come over and get me. Ha ha. Yeah. Anti- hey, when we when them Greeks, those queers, you know, were doing that stuff, our people were, you know, homophobic, racist, uh, anti-Asian, anti-Jewish, thug. And all of a sudden, he, the Obama administration comes in. And he's reinvented as a the Reverend Al Sharpton, a very serious civil rights activist. Yeah. And, and no, I know that it was very depressing. The only good thing about it is I guess he had a GoFund page that immediately shot up over $400,000. Mr. Penny did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's uh, he's going to need I, it. He's going to need it. Right. Somebody's going to need to give him a job uh, after this is over, although in one sense, it, it'll it'll never be over for him. Because, you know, the family's lawyer was out. I don't know the guy's name, but I saw some some short clip. And actually, it was in the New York Post, some, some article. Did did he stop to ask him, did he need help? Something to that effect. You have this guy intimidating everyone. And if, you're, if you've not been on a subway train in New York City, folks, you know, it's uh, it's confined space. Typically, it's going through a dark tunnel, you know, so it's not, it's not uh, the greatest sense of I can get out of here. And it's so it's it's just intimidating. You know, it's very funny. I I saw something like this. I used to when I was a graduate student on Saturday or Sunday night, a couple of graduate students, we would go down University Avenue in Palo Alto. And there was a bar with kind of indoor outdoor. And it kind of got frat students there, you know, uh, Stanford and other students. And I had a colleague who was an absolute genius in classical languages. I've never seen anybody could read Greek like he could. But he was also a severely wounded Vietnam vet in special forces. And it was right after he got back to Vietnam that he went into graduate school. And he was a little touchy. And we sat there. And these frat guys were yelling and screaming and bothering the... um, waitress and start throwing food. And one of them hit me in the head. And I said, what are you doing to about eight of them? And they said, you're not going to do anything because there was eight of them. And without any notice at all, this guy walked up and he went over there and he grabbed him by the back of the neck and some special forces hole. And I thought he's going to kill him. And everybody just, he just threw him on the ground and then yeah. the wait, waiter. And what did the waiter do? He did the same thing. He kicked us out. And but that guy was just terrified. And the moral of the story is that if you go places and you bully people and you threaten them to, with damage and you assault them, you can get away with it one, two, three. But someday at some point you have a rendezvous with somebody that doesn't care. They yep. have that hundred foot, hundred yard stare at and he did. This person, I won't mention his name. He didn't care. He I said afterwards, were you gonna kill him? He said, Yeah. And I said, why? He said, 
Well, have you ever been in the Montagnard village when you call an airstrike on yourself because everybody you knew in the special forces is dead? So I did. So this is nothing compared to that. And, you know, he used to be at a bar and he'd, he would like splinters. His arm was full of shrapnel. He just kind of grossed me out by pushing splinters out, you know, yeah. that would work their way off. And so when I saw that, I thought, well, they're going to romanticize this guy into a Michael Jackson wannabe great impressionist. And they don't care about any of the, the 67 year old woman that was almost, you know, knocked out or the 66-year-old, 65-year-old Hispanic man that got almost got a concussion or the lewd act he was arrested for or all the times he clogged up the criminal justice system and we have to make him into some kind of martyred saint. And we yeah. all, all know that if he had been white doing that and there was a clean-cut black veteran Marine, and there's a lot of them, and that Marine had a step forward and done exactly that, that most people would have praised him, including most of the black community. Hey, hey look what happened in you know, January 6th. One person was shot. If the races had been different between the cop who did the shooting and, and the woman who got killed. Uh, that's another thing with Joe, Joe Biden. When you bring that up, Joe, Joe Biden has been so bad. He and Hakeem Jeffries, they keep saying five people. Have you noticed it? They Five people were killed. At the hands of MAGA or were responsible, MAGA was, no, they weren't. Maybe in the next six months, four more committed suicide. But you don't know whether that was a, a result of that incident. And you don't know why they did it. And to claim that the demonstrators did that. You know, it's very funny about Biden. He keeps mentioning all of this violence on January 6th. But he doesn't say anything that they... A lethally shot a 14-year-old, 14-year military veteran for the crime of going through a window. And nobody said a word. They just and they and then not content with that, they had lurid reports about her sex life and her supposedly white trashy existence. They really tried to demonize right. and destroy her memory. Right. That's what they, that's what they do. And Joe Biden is the she had it this, coming, you know, that's. Yeah. That's and any man, I mean, I don't want to get off topic, but when you look at, I don't like George Santos. He's a pathological liar. He's a cheat. He's a thief. Okay. So we had a big virtue signaling indictment of George Santos. Okay. I have no problem with that. So the president is sent. We're going after liars, liars that, uh, their lies are of such a magnitude they win a obscure congressional race. Fine. That means, okay, so he did, his lies broke the law, unlike uh, Richard Brumenthal, the guy who said he was a Vietnam veteran on his way right. to a Senate seat, or Elizabeth Warren, who parlayed a fake story about high cheekbones into being the first quote-unquote Native American Harvard law professor and Senate so we'll just forget that for a minute because we'll say, well, they didn't break a law. But how about James Clapper, who went under oath and swore, swore under oath to Congress that the National Security Agency did not spy on people. And then when he was caught, he said, I gave the least untruthful. And he was rewarded with a CNN consultant. How about Andrew McCabe? Four times the inspector general said he lied, three of which were under oath. 
about leaking, leaking about the Clinton Foundation. How about James Comey? 245 times he said he couldn't remember while under oath. How about John Brennan? Two times, once under oath, said, we do not spy on Senate staffer computers. He lied right to the face of Dianne Feinstein. She was the head of that committee at the time. Just an out-and-out lie. He got a MSNBC consultantship. How about Robert Mueller, the catalyst for his entire investigation? Two things, Steele dossier, Fusion GPS. Mr. Mr. Mueller, you're under oath. Would you please tell us what you know about the Fusion, uh, the Steele dossier? Oh, that's not my purview. Well, well, then you can tell us about the Fusion GPS. Oh, I don't know anything about it. That was a complete lie. And then we get into Anthony Fauci, route 600,000 through Echo Health to continue gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab that's illegal in the United States. He's asked point blank, did you fund? We do not fund gain-of-function. I can assure you of that. And so my point is, these are whale liars. Santos is a mental liar. And some of these lies have national and international consequences, such as... The laptop, 51 authorities, think of that, can swear that this laptop has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. So Anthony Blinken gets the idea that Joe Biden is so non mentes he's going to get torn apart on the laptop. So he dreams up the idea, according to Mike Morrell, the interim director of the CIA. So he calls Morrell up and says, you know what? We need something for the, the debate coming up. Can you round up the old gang? and have them basically lie and say the laptop is Russian disinformation. I don't know what Morrell did, but he must have known that the repairman had a receipt from Hunter Biden. He must have known that Hunter Biden has lost his crack pipe and another two other laptops. He must know that he's very capable of dumping off a laptop, signing the receipt, and never picking it up. He must have known as well, that when he on national TV won't even deny it, that it's authentic, but it didn't matter. He even got active CIA people to help coordinate that letter, apparently from the latest disclosures. And so did he either Blinken was lying or Morrell was lying or both of them are lying. And in some sense, all 51 people sign their name to a lie. And there's no consequences. But that that laptop may have changed the election. Yeah. And so, yes, go after Santos, liar, the mental liar. But why do we let these whale liars swim about and circle about without any consequences? It's kind of like the Bloomberg effect. Every time the snow snowed and, uh, you know, your streets in New York were clogged, he couldn't get the snow removed. So he talked about supersized drinks he was going to outlaw. Right. You can't deal with a felony. You go after the misdemeanor. Interesting about Blinken, by the way, Victor, uh, and back to point made earlier about him kowtowing to China. Here's the guy that uh, helped engineer the Russian influence or focus on the laptop as Russian influence. And here he is today supersizing China's influence with America. I mean, there's no comparison, right, between the potential of Chinese influence and the potential yeah, of Russian and, influence. And who's the sidekick that was similarly humiliated at the Anchorage summit with the Chinese in March of 2021? 
Jake Sullivan, what do we know about him? He was involved with Sussman as an emissary from the Clinton campaign through the paywalls of the DNC, Perkins Coe, Fusion GPS, pursuing that lie about pings in the Alpha Bank. Remember that? That Trump's computer was supposedly sending code or receiving code from Putin. So they're both compromised. But there's no consequences. I think that's, again, that's what gets people so angry. Right. When they look at the way that this that Merrick Garland, I mean, they got they went through that Pentagon and they expelled 10,000 people that didn't get a vaccination. Now we learn if you read Scott Atlas's latest in the Newsweek and other people that the efficacy of those. Vaccines was not 96 percent, as they claimed. It was very feeble. They knew that they faded very quickly. We knew what there were some um, side effects. And yet, if you didn't get that in the military, they kicked you out where we let in six and a half million foreign nationals who, A, entered illegally, B, resided illegally, three, found illegal means to continue that. And we didn't ask them for a test and we didn't insist on a vaccine. Well, Victor... We're going to take a break, but I think maybe we'll talk a little more about things chaotic and uh, we'll talk about the Ukraine. And hopefully we'll have a little time at the end to get in a thought or two related to Mother's Day. And we'll do that right after these important messages. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. If you like what Victor says and you like what he writes, I hope you're reading what Victor's writing, you need to visit the Blade of Perseus. That's his website, victorhanson.com. And there's a repository for Victor's appearances, uh, um, some clips from Fox, but other other um, uh, videos, uh, other podcasts. When you're on Megyn Kelly's show, for example, which I recommend everyone listen to. Uh, Victor, links to his books, links to Victor's pieces for American Greatness and a syndicated column. You'll also find ultra articles. You will click on it. You will not be able to read them. You'll be frustrated. And there's a solution to that. Subscribe. $5 gets you in the door. And for a full year, it's $50. And for that $50, you get two or three times a week the Original articles Victor writes exclusively for the Blade of Perseus. So heart, heartily, heartily recommend um, that you do that. Um, Victor, uh, one last thing about uh, chaos, and then we should get your thoughts about you know how you see things uh, that are hap- how the wars uh, uh, carrying on there in the Ukraine. Uh, you know, Joe Biden loves chaos. You talked before about, you know, that being upset about, you know, January 5th. But look at the chaos that he's created with, you know, the Afghanistan withdrawal on the border. Could there be anything more chaotic than that? And when you go back and look at his record as a as a United States senator, 
way, way back. Look, he was he was a senator in 1972. He supported the withdrawal from Vietnam, which you all have seen the videos was chaos. And then on the cultural front, his oversight of these uh, Supreme Court hearings with Bob Bork and Clarence Thomas were were pivotal moments for uh, you know, de-escalating our not de-escalating escalating our madness of our of our culture. Now, Joe he, well, Biden yeah, loves chaos. He's a far worse president than Barack Obama. Think about every Biden is the worst president in the last hundred years. If you think about it, think about all the things. If a man will lie about how his wife died to defame an innocent truck driver, what else would he not do? If he'll lie about how his son died and claim he died in Iraq, what else will he do? If he'll lie about his college records, what else will he do? If he'll steal a speech from a British politician and take it as his own on national campaign, what else will he do? He lies about everything. Everything, everything. He lied. He said that he took the amnesty program for student loans to Congress and it only we only had two votes. No, you didn't even try to do that. Don't lie about it. He said gasoline was five dollars. He just lies and lies and lies. It's a little bit more egregious now or maybe not because he's senile. But he uses that cover or his supporters use that cover to say, well, he's not lying. He's just confused. Well, what was he for his most? He's a racist. He was the one that started to talk about, you know, the jungle in the 70s. He was the one who said that Barack Obama was the first clean, articulate black. He was the one who said, put you all in change to a gifted group of black professionals. He was the one that said junkie. He was the one who said you ain't black. He's you the one black. that called yeah. you, you called two black subordinates boy. He's a, he's also a sexist uh and a sexual assaulter. What are, aside from Tara Reed's uh, pretty graphic descriptions, he can't keep his hands off young girls. And we've had a lot of, he's had to have a video. Remember in the 2020 campaign after Elizabeth Warren and uh, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris said they believed. Remember, they believed Tara Reid. They believe, and he had a problem. And so right. he had, he went, had that little video. I'm from a different generation. No, you're not. You just blow on girls' hair. You hug too hard. You get too close because that's what you do, and you get away with it because you're Joe Biden. This is a guy who swam naked in front of female Secret Service people. He gets a pass on everything, and then so if it's racism or sexism or lying about people and destroying people's lives, he gets a pass. And then we get into the corruption. You, you take his houses, his lifestyle, and you take that tiny little period between his exit from vice president, that four years until his ascension as president, that's not enough time doing legal, honest work to justify post facto all of those houses and all of that lifestyle. And then he lies and says he's never met anybody from Hunter's world, doesn't know anything. You have pictures of him with it. So that's all the character so-called issue, but it's not what he did to us. He destroyed the border. 
He destroyed energy of autonomy. He destroyed the idea we had a low inflationary economy. He caused high interest rates. He destroyed the whole idea of Afghanistan as maybe a small, stable American presence at Bagram with this huge, efficient Air Force base. He gave $50 billion to terrorists that from those weapons. Everything he touches turns to dross. He has the on Midas touch. And the idea that these never Trumpers worship him and say he's a great guy and he's going to stop us from getting Trump or that the left say, oh, well, he is a total veneer, a construct, an artifact for the hard left Jacobins who've taken over this country and are pushing everything from reparations to destruction of the border to these Soros funded. Right activist DAs, and he oversees that whole thing. I think he's going to have a rendezvous with Nemesis. I really do. His hubris is so much that bad things are going to happen and they're going to lose in 2024, or he's not going to be able to make it. He's going to have to come up with a very creative excuse why he's in the basement because he's not able to campaign. He can't say it's COVID this time. And this time he can't say he's good old Joe Biden from Scranton. If you just give him a chance, he's going to unite the American people and give you a good old Clinton centrist policies. No, we've seen what he did. So I think if he continues and the Republicans can get their act together, and I think by that, I mean, right now, every single person, Tim Scott, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley should stand up and say, whoever is the nominee, I am going to support. Right. Not like 2016, I'm going to support whoever wins. And then when Trump wins, they said, F you, I'm not going to do it. But they should do that and unite because they could take that. They could take the House by a big margin again. They could take the Senate. They can take the presidency. And then they should they know the face of the left now. And they could really make some changes to save the country. Yeah. Victor, uh, let's talk about Ukraine and the counteroffensive you know, it seems to be proceeding and proceeding well. I don't know. Well, maybe overstating it. Well, what are your thoughts on what's happening in the war between Ukraine and Russia? Well, as I understand the, the counter offensive, it is to go into the border town, the border areas uh, that Russia controlled before the invasion of 2000. Uh, 22, and then expanded that front by 30 to 50 miles. So when they say offensive, they think, I don't know quite how they define that is what I'm getting at. Do they mean they're going to take all the Russian land back and push them back to the 2014 borders? Do they think they have the wherewithal to push the Russians all the way back to the pre-2014 or the original borders of Ukraine and then turn their attention to Crimea? So I don't think that's going to happen. But I do think they can stop the offensive of the Russians and get them back to where we all started, you know, a year and a half ago. And uh, it's another sign of this pathetic administration that people are starting, including Zelensky, to look toward the Chinese for uh, a peace plan. And we have hard to believe. Yeah. China China didn't give one penny to Ukraine. We gave them one hundred and forty billion dollars and we risk all of this negative geostrategic consequences. This new alliance of China and Russia and Iran with sort of not 
every once in a while, India and Turkey, you know, joining in and nobody's following their sanctions, including Japan. And what did China do? They just capitalized on the whole thing. And now they're going to walk in and be the peacemakers. Yeah. It's, hey, it's, I'm, spring, I'm, I'm springing this on you. You just mentioned Turkey, but uh, and I, I've only seen a fleeting headline, but elections are coming and it looks like Erdogan may be replaced by yeah. someone less crazy. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, th- this coalition, this anti-Erdogan coalition is far right, far left. It's everybody. They. He's running on the idea that he took 76% inflation. He got it down to 45%. Think of that. And this Islamic Islamization of Turkey, this completely unfounded lunatic attacks on Greece and going into Greek airspace and promising to send missiles into Athens one morning and trying to say that the Dodecanese islands don't belong to Greece and that someday all these islands off the coast of Turkey are going to be, you know, this is kind of like the Turkish view of the 1920s Greek idea, the idea that we're going to go really change it and bring back the Byzantine Empire. But he's got the idea we're going to bring back the Ottoman Empire and take over the Eastern Mediterranean. And the idea that he can tell this guy can tell us whether Finland or Sweden can be in NATO or not. And this guy can cut a deal with Russia to have Russian anti-aircraft systems uh as the same time he's fabricating parts for the F-35 and wants the F-35. So he's an enemy of the United States. He's got the largest military of any member except us, and we have appeased him. So let's hope that they get some, you know, normal person in Turkey, that Turkey's is split 50-50 between the Anatolian fundamentalist and the Ionian and Constantinople, to use the old word, that whole group of Europeanized Turks who were more pro-American. But right. then Turkey, remember the Isolik Air Force Base down near Anatolia, near the Syrian border, he, he basically told us that the nuclear weapons, these huge ones, these dirty big old bombs from the Cold War were his. And during that coup attempt, it was pretty iffy. He, he, they don't really release it, but from what I've talked to and, and from some news reports, it wasn't sure that we had control of those nuclear weapons, that he was trying to, uh, you know, secure them himself and not allow Americans their u- usual contractual rights at that base. So, and he said before that e- even though Turkey's not a, nat- a, a, nat- a nuclear power, it is because it has some powerful weapons on its soil. So he, He's a dangerous, dangerous person. Yeah. And if he can lose, but I don't think he's going to lose. I don't think people like that ever allow elections to be transparent or they would lose them. Yeah. Victor, you spend a lot of time in in, in, in I Greece. I, I know I some too. time in Turkey. Uh, yeah. I'm just curious, you know, about, you know, in popular culture, we think, well, these are of the two, what two nations that, uh, you know, uh, buttress each other, ha- hate each other. And people think, you know, the Greeks hate the Turks and the Turks hate the Greeks. But I wonder, is that how true is that? Do you think your man in the street Greek really gives a rat's patoot about the Turks or or do they? Well, it goes back, you know, more than 500 years ago. Right. The Turks can't get this idea that all of Anatolia was Greek and the Ionian coast was the birthplace of Greek. This is where Homer came from. This is where 
the pre-Socratic philosophers and the lyric poets came from. Constantinople is a Greek word, the, the polis of Constantine. And it was a Greek-speaking empire of 20 million people. And by the 13th century, these Seljuk Turks came in and gobbled up. And by 1453, they took over Constantinople and they expelled most. There was about a million Byzantines that were orphaned there. And then in the 1920s, after World War I, the Greeks came up with this, what they call the Megali idea, the great idea. And it was to reform the Byzantine Empire because they had been on the winning side of World War II. And as part of the spoils, as a united Greek nation, they had got back Creek. 1913, they got back Thessaly and Macedonia after the failed Bulgarian uh, wars. They got back from Bulgaria, Western Thrace, and they had a deal, Venezuelans did, with the winning powers that they wanted Eastern Thrace, Smyrna, which is modern Izmir, and a coastal corridor up to take back Istanbul. Remember, after World War I, the Allies occupied Istanbul, and they agreed to it. That was what was so strange. The Allies agreed to it. So they had reversed immigration where at one point by 1918, 1919, 1920, there was a million Greek speakers in Smyrna. They were about 50% of the population. And all of the Greeks in Asia Minor were probably 2 million. And they had they invaded to, to, and went all the way almost to Ankara. And then the British and the French said, oh, my God, this is a mess. This is a mess. We've got the Young Turks. We've got the new uh, Ataturk government. We've got uh, all the aftermath of World War II. We've got the Russian Revolution. Let's just put a lid on this. And they cut the Greek supplies off. They pushed the Greek army back to the coast. They burned down Smyrna. They killed 100,000 Greeks, and then they ethnically cleansed every Greek out. And then they had, you know, population exchanges during the 20s. And we got to the modern world where there is essentially 6,000 Greeks in all of Turkey and maybe five or 6,000 Turks in all of Greece with all that hatred. And then you add Cyprus, 1973, where 74, where some nutty uh, writers said he was going to unite Cyprus, which was 70% Greek-speaking, and the whole island had been Greek since antiquity until the Turks and the Ottomans invaded it in the 15th century. Even then, it was only 30%, and then the Turkish army invaded, and they slaughtered about 20,000 people. They took the best land, and they began pouring Turkish colonists in there. So they've got a long history of mutual antagonism, but I think Anybody in the United States who looks at it dispassionately would see that the Greeks are part of the Western world and they're only 12 million people and they're outnumbered and they're not the ones that are flying into Turkish space. And what I mean by that is if a plane takes off Samos, Lesbos, Rhodes, he doesn't go all the way into Turkish uh homeland. But when a Turk takes off from Ionia, he goes in over Greek islands and claims they're his own. And so it's kind of an anomaly. There's certain people in the world, Jack, as you know, that we just take for granted. But there's what, 11 million Jews in Israel surrounded by 100 million Arabs, many of whom hate them and, and not to mention 60, 70 million Persians who want to kill them. 
And then we've got Armenians, that tiny little country that's surrounded by Turkish speaking peoples that hates them, a little Christian outpost, first country really that was Christian. Uh, and then you've got Greece, little 12 million person Greece with this huge 50,000 square miles of this very valuable, beautiful territory that's underpopulated, and it's in a very bad neighborhood. And so traditionally, we have every president that came in, because we have large di diasporas of Jews and Greeks and Armenians, was very understanding of that. And we were very pro-Greek. We were very pro-Israel. We were very pro-Armenian, even though it was part of the Soviet Union for a while. And I don't think we were that way anymore. And I think the, our enemies know that. Yeah. And so all of those pl places are under the gun. Well, Victor, we have time for a little thing or two. Maybe we'll 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 take a nod to to moms, and we'll do that right after this final important message. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Yes, Mother's Day was probably two or three days ago from the time when this podcast is is released or published, however one might say it, which, by the way, happens officially through John Solomon's JustTheNews.com. Victor, uh, I had posed you an idea of uh, discussing uh, favorite movie moms. I love I know people love when you talk about movies and, and music. And uh, I, I just want to posit a thing or two here about movie moms, you know, I'm a, Turner Classic Movies uh, uh, freak, and you know, also know I'm half Italian. And I, one of my favorite movies is Marty. Ernie Ernest Borgnine won the Oscar, and his, the mom, the actress uh, who plays him in the movie, she's just so terrific. And she's at one point in the movie, she's trying to get her son. Uh, Marty, who's a chubby butcher, unmarried, trying to get him to go out on a date at the Stardust Ballroom in New York City because she's heard the phrase, it's a, it's a loaded with the tomatoes uh, chick. So I, I, I really like her. Of course, I love Irene Dunn from I Remember Mama. That's a great you know, that Norwegian uh, story. Oh, God. She's a wonderful. That was a very sad movie. You know, George Stevens, I think, along with William Wyler, were the two best directors in Hollywood. Why was well, George Stevens? What was his great movie, uh, Victor? Well, Shane, of course. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But but he did that. I think he did. I remember Mama, too. He was a really great director. And God, she was Irene Dunn was so good about that family. It was. Yeah. She kept the, the whole family together. You know, another one. My favorite mom was Millie in Best Years of Our Lives, thinking about it. That was a Myrna Oh, Lord. yeah. Remember, what was so good about her was when Frederick Mars gets back and he drinks too much and he gets in embarrassing situations, he's out of hand, they stay out too late. Right. She never nags. No. She just smiles at him and she's, you know, She's so supportive and she runs that whole family. Yeah. Know, the, the daughter's having that affair with Dana Andrews and she right. understands it. And she's the, she really Myrna allowed. Yeah. Yes, Myrna Loy. She was a wonderful actress. Speaking yeah. of Myrna Loy, I know that yeah. she had a kid late. Is it three? There were three uh, thin man, more thin man, thin man returns, right? With William Powell and Myrna Loy. Yeah, I I think more than three. Three. But, uh, and and uh, the last one or two, they had a little child, right? Nikki. Yeah. I think, yeah. And but she was wonderful in that. She played he she did the same thing with William Powell that 
she did with Frederick March. You know, he was kind of crazy and everything, but she supported him. They had that little shtick, remember, where she was very beautiful and he was kind of nonchalant about his marriage. She knew he just knew that she liked him and he liked her, but she would dance with people. Right. And she all the people would swarm her table and he would just kind of chuckle about it. And she would too. She didn't she never really flirted, but it was just she knew she had an actual attraction for people, but she only really liked William Powell. Yeah. And and she was really she's a really great actress. Yeah, she's you know, oddly, oddly beautiful, I think would be fair to say. There's yeah, something yeah. very, very catching about her. Yeah, You're I, right I, about I, the best years, by the way. You, that, that scene, that about five minutes of film when they're out on the town drinking. And I think <laughs> Frederick March plays the best drunk in movie history, the most believable drunk. And she's so good with them, Victor. Yeah, you're 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 dead on with that. Yeah. He you know, no, she plays that one of the second he he was a great drunk, but so was uh Jose Ferrer and the Kane Mutiny at the end. Remember him? Oh yeah. He, he yes. throws he throws the drink on Fred McMurray and he said, I'll be outside if you have the courage to do something about it. Yeah. Just to finish of all those moms that were good, like Father's knows best. Remember Barbara Billingsley, June Cleaver? Yeah. She was good, too. She was really good. <laughs> she was the. You didn't know her, did you? I mean, no, sometimes she, you surprise think, us that you you know this. No, she was a multitasker. I know she lived to be her. Uh, I just remember seeing her in her 90s. She lived to be like 94 or something. But she she was. Uh, and all it's so funny because we all consider. uh that the sec that's the sexist period of American right. um, film, and yet you look at three three of the most popular series: the Donna Reed Show, Fathers right. Knows Best, and Leave It to Beaver. And the star really that keeps the whole family going are the wives and the mothers, and every right. one of those. It's kind of like we all say, "Well, Holly, we're all racist, and we never gave any." Or any due to Native Americans, and then you go back and you look at all of these westerns. Um, I mean, Ombre, or and they're all you know, little big man or man called horse. If anything, they romanticize Native Americans, and they make sort of this idea that cowboys just shoot stupid Indians. Not true. That's right. not, and it, it's. Uh, it's I really think John funny. John Ford's uh, uh, you know sensitivity. So I think yeah. I can use that word to, uh, to uh, Indians at the time. I th uh, I think it still yeah, comes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. People don't understand. John Ford was a liberal. Everybody said he was a cranky anti-communist with Duke Wayne, but he's he he, he made grapes of wrath. And that that movie was right. all about the oppressive system and what it does to poor Okies. And when you look at even the searchers and the whole point of the characterization of Ethan Edwards, when he shoots the eyes out of the Indian corpse uh, is that he's got a pathological hatred for native Americans and he uh, overcomes that. And that that's, and it's wrong and that's portrayed that way. And, and then remember Sergeant Rutledge where he's, yeah, well, he, that movie was sort of, in the Kill a Mockingbird era, but it was all show, it was all based on racism and ill treatment of blacks. And so, you know, I was thinking of that the other day when I was watching my wife and I were watching again Kill a Mockingbird, which has now somehow been transmogrified into a, 
what a racist or it's it's taboo this was the iconic liberal movie that is like martin luther king victor these things uh these things and people are would not be permitted today if they came Uh, on the scene right yeah i guess because they had a black housekeeper who when you look at the housekeeper how she's portrayed she keeps gary peck's family together and she's a disciplinarian and she's responsible for making the kids behave in a proper way so it's a positive portrayal but you know i this whole revisionism that they go back and they take these periods and they think until they were born these activists like sharpton or these reparations people in san francisco until i came on the scene the whole country was horrible no it wasn't it wasn't. We we didn't need you. That we were making pretty good progress in racial relations till you came along, and there was a lot of opportunity. I, I listened the other day to. I'm just going to finish this round with Oprah's graduation. Did you see that speech? She I gave? did not. Where? I don't know where it was, but it was just a a rant about how awful the United States was and how unfair it was. And I'm saying to myself, you became a billionaire because you had a monopoly on a black woman's knowledge and technique, how to talk to suburban women who were white, mostly at about 11, nine o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning. Right. That was your forte. And you, parlayed that to riches and you were not subject to a lot of racism but wow this what how things have changed it's just and we're in this age of rep we just got announced we're up to 45 billion dollars perhaps 25 went to 40 billion or it's 15 went to 25 now they're talking about 40 billion dollars of deficits and Gavin Ness it took a, a surplus and he got ran it into the ground, multi-billion dollar deficit. And these African-American activists won $800 billion. Also, Victor, I see this headline from the Daily Mail, California Reparations Task Force now wants to legalize racial discrimination. I mean, I, above and beyond the money. <laughs> I don't I don't understand that because everybody in California knows that nobody follows the law, that the voters twice have passed. 209 and then it's replacement. Everybody knows it's a law and everybody knows that every university admissions officer administrator breaks a law. Stanford just put out on its website that in a country that has 67% white people, that it only takes 22%. And how can that be unless you're deliberately using race as a criterion and you, when you throw out SAT scores and don't make them required. So why why would they want to say, well, we want to institutionalize preference? Everybody knows that if you're an African-American educated and you're in a competition for a government or university or media job with a educated person who is white, maybe not Hispanic, maybe not Asian as much, that you have an edge. Everybody knows that. They Everybody knows that. So why would you want to institutionalize what's true? It doesn't make any sense. And, you know, I think at some point I'm really worried about all this. I'm worried because I think that the left is in an it's in an echo chamber and it doesn't understand the effect it's having on people. I'm not saying that it's creating white backlash or as, as, you know, white lash, but it's. It's they don't know how ridiculous they sound because they're talking to themselves. So when you have a Don Lamone whining and whining about all the bad things that's happening and he's an utter mediocrity or you have that 
NPR reporter the other day at the press conference trying to insist from a left-wing interior secretary, Mayorkas, who ran a left-wing investigation and still found that the Border Patrol did not whip Haitians. And here she is still insisting that she saw that, and therefore it had to happen. And the, the racial obsessions is too much. It's just yeah. it's it's alienating everybody. Everybody wants to say, just why don't we just treat people as individuals? Right. And you don't want to go into collectives. If you start talking about collectives and you lump everybody by their superficial appearance, it's not going to work out well. I said that on an interview the other day, just to end. Uh, I did an interview with a radio guy in Los Angeles and they were talking about reparations and everything and white privilege and everything. And I just said, you know, there are two criteria you could use. They're not the only two to adjudicate whether whites are exercising their privilege or not. One, are they committing more hate crimes than other groups? And B, are they committing more interracial groups because inter more interracial crime more than other groups? Because if that were to be true, then the allegations of Lloyd Austin or Mark Milley that, that, that they're prone to white rage and supremacy and privilege might be might be might be an indicator of that. And yet when I go on the latest FBI statistics, and by the way, most local law enforcement are not turning their data over to a centralized statistical collection program at the FBI. But nevertheless, I don't see it. I see that of the hate crimes, the 67 percent of the population is committing about half of them. And the 12 percent of the population is, is committing about 25 percent of them. And when I look at the 12 percent, it's committing uh, interracial crimes against the 67 at about six times what it should be doing. And the 67 is underrepresented in committing crimes against the 12 percent. And so I, I think what what's going on? I don't see a white group of people who are terrorizing people either in the context of a hate crime or an interracial crime. But I do see groups that are supposedly the victims and marginalized that are committing both hate crimes and interracial crimes yeah. at numbers greater than their demographics. And so when you have that truth and you have this this lie, it's not sustainable. And so when I, you, I, it's not sustainable. When people talk about the subway or right. people getting knocked at the knockout game or the attacks on Asians in San Francisco or New York or the attacks on Hasidic Jews or when you hear about some egregious thing and there's a TikTok video or there's a smash and grab in Compton or there's a riot and looting in a San Francisco store or the million dollar mile. It's inordinately African-American males. I mean, inordinately defined as greater than five or six percent of these videos are these news reports, which is about the demographic of African-American males. And so when you have that reality and then you say the people who are experiencing that reality, you're racist and you have privilege, it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. It's not yeah, going to well, be persuasive. It's getting I'm starting to hear things from people who are very left wing. And when you hear Richard Dreyfus say this is crazy and you know, what we're yeah. doing in Hollywood or Bill Maher or Matt Taibbi or even Eli Musk, you can see these are left wing people. And, and anyway, right. that's my Mother Day rant.
That's a good, okay. Well, first of all, all those Catholics, uh, excuse me, all those uh, white supremacists are Latin mass. So that's what they're, they're too busy praying to go out there and, and to engage in racist, racist acts. Uh, at least the FBI might think that. And one of the, I just wanted to mention one of the Mother's Day film, Victor, that, uh, it's Mildred Pierce. Now it's oh. not the greatest love story between a mother and a daughter, but yeah, Joan Joan Crawford. Crawford, oh, she's terrific. It's a great movie. Did you see the, uh, PBS six, like six hour version of that? No, was, I did not. It was no. really good because the no good guy, uh, well, Jack Carson guy yeah. or Zachary Scott. Uh, yeah. Zachary's he's played by, uh, what's his name? Pierce. You know, the guy that was in County Monte Cristo. He's a really good that Australian actor, uh, Guy Pierce. Okay. Yeah. He did a really great job in that. I kind of like the 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 six hour document. I mean a PBS special. It, All right. it, it, well, it was it was in a lot of detail, but that that Mildred Pierce really that was kind of Joan Crawford's big comeback movie. Yeah. And it really I, captured the idea of how you can work very hard and be talented and make a fortune and then the wages of affluence and how it corrupts the entire everybody and yeah. she gets she gets corrupted too by giving into that awful daughter the the, the daughter was Anne Blythe who is still alive yeah. i believe yeah, she I was think nominated she is, for an oscar she was good uh, actress she she was a good actress and what was the guy jack jack carson the evil guy that Oh, Zachary Scott. Yeah, Zachary Scott. He died young, didn't he? He died very he, young. Yeah, yeah, he was the kind of a bankrupt wastrel, and he just rips rips Joan Crawford off, rips her off, Mildred Pierce rips her off, and then finally she finally wakes up. But it's all about this idea you need to get status because your money is is dirty if you made it honestly. Right. You're, but, you're, you're, the daughter taxer is nothing but a... Some a frump who uh, took in, his mother took in yeah smells of smells smell, of oil. Smell Dad of lived above right. a garage yeah. and his mother took in laundry. Uh, yeah, it's funny. Well, Victor, thanks for all the wisdom you've shared and your Mother's Day movie thoughts. That's that's great. Two two things as we close uh, today's uh, show. Uh, I'd like to thank our listeners, whatever platform they listen on. Thanks for coming here. Appreciate it. Those who come on iTunes or Apple can leave uh, ratings, zero to five stars. Practically everyone leaves five stars. Thank you very much. Some leave comments. And as you know, we read all the comments. And some of them, you know, some of them hurt. But uh, most of them are <laughs> very generous and, of course, very generous towards Victor. And here's one. Uh, it's, it's titled, uh, Thank You. Very simple. Mr. Hansen, I'm a 22-year-old who works in welding. I listen to you through my earplugs all day, and I love every minute of each show. You are spot on, and hearing an intelligent man like you speak the truth helps me think maybe there is some sanity left in the world. Keep it up, and a thank you to Jack and Sammy, too. Signed, Decent. Thanks, Decent. Those are very kind thoughts, and I would just like to conclude reminding folks that I do Jack Fowler, I, I have a job. I write. I work for the Amer uh, for the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic, now Amphil, and I write a free weekly email newsletter called Civil Thoughts. Go to Civil Thoughts, sign up. As I said, it's free. We don't sell the list. None of that business. It's non-transactional. And when you get Civil Thoughts, you'll see that I uh, put forward 
a dozen or so recommended readings, things I've come across the previous week that I think intelligent people will find worthwhile and interesting. So that's SybilThoughts.com. Thank you, uh, those who have signed up for that. Thanks for those who listened today. Thanks to all moms. Thank you, Victor, for all the wisdom you shared. And we'll be back soon with another episode of The Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening. 